Hi, my name's Shane Terrio. I'm a guitarist, producer, and you're listening to Talking Blues. So how were the gigs last week? How was the Le Combo gigs in New York? They were good for a for a trial run, you know, it was sort of a, a dip your toe in the water kind of thing. And uh, you know, it's uh, it's hard to get people to come out, especially post coronavirus. But we had some good it was okay, good turnout. You had some heavy duty people come out. Yeah, some friends and some some definitely some heavy hitters. And you know, it's just New York's always rough. We didn't get a sound check, we didn't get to uh really do a line check until I walked on stage in front of everybody, you know, playing through a house amp that I never played through before. So it's, it's, uh, they don't make it easy. <laughs> well, what is that like for a musician? I mean, you, you work with a lot of big acts, you, you have your sound check and you have your routine. What's it like to go on stage like that? I've, I've done that many times, but not with my own thing, singing lead vocals, you know, like not even to be able to test the microphone and to play through, you know, I've played through plenty of shitty rental amps and backline things. I can make pretty much anything work, but that gets a little, it gets a little uh, stressful when you look out in the front row, see, you know, all those heavy hitters and, and you don't even have a sound check that we were promised. So um, that's stressful the time it's not like that you know and, and uh like the big the big time gigs or, or the other bigger venues and, and artists i work with i mean it's pretty easy how does one get the word out because this is a relatively new band um well i i would say in these days i don't know I mean, probably social media which you know two of the three guys aren't even on <laughs> so <laughs> it makes it a little difficult uh yeah, so it's just uh, just a side project, you know. We don't have any delusions of grandeur or anything there, but it's fun. It's it's definitely fun to do your own music, and I have a lot of respect for people that only do that and commit to only doing their own thing. It's quite a sacrifice, quite a pretty hard thing. I'm not used to that. Um, well, I'm curious because you have an interesting career path. And I guess I want to ask you about that and, and how you chose to be who you are and how you got here. Um, did you ever have the dreams to do your own thing? And Oh, always. That was the first thing. Yeah, that was the first thing I wanted to do. Okay, so at, at the age of 11, you start playing seriously or you start gigging publicly. Um, at, what, at that point, you're thinking, I want to do my own thing. I don't know. What do you think of when you're 11? I was just, <laughs> I thought it was cool to play guitar and actually make money for it and, and uh, from it. And, you know, I guess every teenager, my, at that point wanted to be some kind of rock star or whatever. And I thought that's what I was going to do, but I, I just liked early on playing different styles of music. And I was drawn to just the whole just the beauty of the guitar as a whole and all the things you could do and all the styles. And for better or worse, I sort of embraced all these styles. And, and at a, you know, when I got out of music school, I started getting called to do different projects and they, that's what I did. I just kind of followed that path more than putting everything into one basket. You know, um, I just enjoyed it and I was good enough at it that people kept calling me for different things. So, that's what I did. What did you hope to get out of going to GIT? When I initially signed up, I was um, I was actually, uh, when I was in high school, I finished my last year and a half of high school. And I was, I was um, let's see, during that time, I was in the jazz program at a college. <clears throat> but I was in high school, but I was already playing with the college jazz band, the local college, and, and I was given a scholarship to the, to that college. And, um, I just, as great as that was, it was, it wasn't really too inspiring to learn from guys that had never really been in the trenches and with all due respect, it was just, it was kind of like, I didn't want to learn from professors who learned from other professors. You know, I, 
I wanted to be got with guys who were doing it. I mean, I was 19, 18, 19. And those, to me, those were guys like Scott Henderson, who at that time was playing with Chick Corea and Joe Zawinul. And, and um, I mean, there were other players, but he was a big one for me. And um, I wanted to be around that caliber. And, and uh, that's what I hoped to get out of it was for some of that to rub off of me. And it did. I mean, I was around players from all over the world who were, you know, I went from being the, the best player in my town, probably uh, definitely at my age, to being one of the best players with a lot of other great players. And that, and that really elevates your, your whole – it just does a lot of things. It was just growing up. I, I'd, I'd never really been anywhere. So to be in Hollywood, it, you know, when you're 18, 19, living on your own, it was just – it was great. I loved it. It was, a, it was life lessons besides music lessons, you know. How much gigging were you doing and what kind of gigging were you doing at that point? Before I went there, I was gigging. I was, uh, I was, I was teaching guitar lessons at a community college when I was about 17. And I was uh, teaching at a music store called Parker Music and I had a bunch of students. And I was, my whole exit strategy was just to go to LA. So I was saving money and I was playing with some, um, local jazz guys and we went I mean all kinds of stuff parties um in you know growing up in South Louisiana I'd played a lot of festivals Mardi Gras parades that kind of thing there was there was always music going everywhere and um and yeah but when I got to LA I didn't I didn't do any of that I just practiced all the time and obviously teaching was something that you were good at because when you finished school that's what you went into immediately yeah, I I think I was good at it. I mean, I don't do much of it these days, but um, there was a sister school at the at the time for there was GIT Los Angeles, where now it's called Musicians Institute, and there was a sister school called Atlanta Institute of Music. It was called GIT Atlanta originally. It was their smaller school, and I had no money. I mean, I was twenty years old. I had no money. And I just broke up with his girlfriend and, you know, stuff you go through when you're 20 years old. And um, Scott Henderson had got me a job. He said, they're looking for a teacher in Atlanta and, you know, make a tape. You know, in those days it was a tape. So I, uh, and Scott made a phone call for me and I got that, I got the job. So I moved to Atlanta and it wasn't, I didn't really want to move to Atlanta, but I had no money. And, you know, when you're 20 years old, you do crazy. You just float around the country like it's nothing. And um, when I got there, there was a uh, guy named Jim Herring who was sitting there. He was older than me. And I started subbing. He started subbing his classes to me because he got busy with uh aquarium rescue unit he was in at the time. And that's how kind of how I ended up teaching. It wasn't on, in the plans. I just had nothing else going on, you know. But had you had it your way, what would you prefer to do at that point? Would would you have preferred to establish your own career as a solo musician or in a band? Yeah, that's what I, I mean. I wanted to do all of that stuff. I didn't really know. I still don't really know sometimes. But uh, I think it was, yeah, it, you don't really know what to do. I, I, I didn't have the good fortune of growing up, you know, with parents who were in the music business or around an uncle who was a famous session musician or songwriter. I didn't know anybody. So I didn't really know what to do. You know, I would, I, I can't remember. I, there was no game plan. I just kind of went where the wind took me. And that seemed to be the best opportunity to, I needed money, you know, and, uh, and that seemed to be, well, all, everybody that I knew and at school in LA, they were either going back to Europe or they, they were going back to their hometowns. And I thought, well, I'm not doing that. So at least I'm teaching. And I remember thinking I'm either going to, I'm going to go back to LA at some point when I get some more money, but I just had no money. So that's why I went to Atlanta and uh, it turned out to be, you know, it wasn't uh it was a good experience. I got to make some uh, friends and grow a little bit and teach and meet some people. And and you must have been pretty good as a guitar player. I think I was. I mean, people were telling me that. I mean, Scott got me that job, and I, I had a lot of confidence at that point. But again, I was twenty years old. You know, I uh, I I was used to being around good players in L.A. But it seems to me like whenever an opportunity presented itself, 
and and you went for it, you you got that gig. I, I don't know how many gigs you tried out for that you didn't get, but not yeah, there's, too. There's there's a few. There's a few big ones um, that came much much later. You know, that was much later. I mean, basically what happened to keep it really short so I don't bore your listeners is I was in Atlanta a year and a half and I um, I, I got a friend. Of, I played in the show band and I saved up enough money to make my first demo, which ended up on this Mike Varney CD called Guitar on the Edge. And as soon as I had enough money to go in the studio, I quit the show band. And one of my best friends, I got him the job. And. So my friend, his name was Dave. He moved to Nashville. He met a girl, moved to Nashville. It's always about a girl. And and he called me one day and said, man, I got this top 40 gig in Nashville and I'm making it. And I was like, well, you're making more money than me. I'm moving to Nashville. So I moved to Nashville. And it wasn't a choice, but that's where the early opportunities came from, people I met. Um, it wasn't out of Atlanta. Atlanta was pretty limited musically. It's mostly hip hop at that time. And you know, I, I saw the writing on the wall, even at 21 years, 22 years old, like you're only going to get so far here and there's really no industry. And and soon after you wound up working and doing some recordings in studios. Yeah, it took a while, but yeah, I did. Yeah. And that eventually led you to, not directly, but eventually led you to join the Neville Brothers. Eventually. Yeah, that was... Uh, that was because I, I, yeah, that's sort of ironic that I moved to Nashville <laughs> to get a gig that was based in New Orleans, which I had left and never thought I would live in again. You know, it wasn't a place I thought about ever really living in again. But yeah, that's that came out of Nashville. You're right. This is a bit aside, but you, you spend a lot of time in New York, L.A., and New Orleans right now, right? Yeah. As a player, does that environment influence you at all i know that there's a lot of louisiana and new orleans and in, in your playing with with the funky guitar or whatever but but are you a different player in new york are you a different player in la or are you just the same player and you see no difference well no i i think it's a combination of uh who you associate with and also the environment and i i think the environment does p play a part like when i lived in new york i did live in new york for a few years and um, I made a record called Still Motion that was, I call it my New York record, even though some of it was done in New Orleans. It was very influenced by being in New York. And specifically, the use of space is mostly trio. And that, it, it had a little bit of an edge to it that I think New York guys have. And it's, it's kind of less is more. I think yeah. I, I noticed that in New York, it's everything down to when you go to a gig, it's you're limited by what you can carry on a subway as far as pedals and guitars, and you just sort of make things work. And I think there's that adds to an edge, kind of like what we were talking about before with the no sound check. That's typical New York. It's like, here's your time, go on stage, do it, you know? <laughs> and it, and I think after a while you get used to it and it, it just, those kind of players, you know, like Wayne Krantz or, uh, I used to see Wayne every Thursday and we'd talk about this or uh, a lot of drummers too. I, you know, they just come in and make whatever kit work. It affects your sound. Whereas LA, I think you have the luxury of having more, you know, everybody's got a home studio or you go into a real studio or, you know, um, and I think it, it sounds not, I don't think it sounds more safe. I just think it's maybe a little more relaxed, <laughs> play a little more relaxed or something. I don't know. That's just, and it depends on who you're playing with. I think it's an interesting question. And in New Orleans, where I would imagine it's a very musical town, but I I get the feeling that how I perceive it about music might not be the same as the way you would perceive it because you're a musician actually living there. Yeah, well, New Orleans is a. Is a um... <laughs> It's it can be kind of frustrating because it, it's it's as as beautiful as a city as it is. Some it's a lot of things about it are sort of third world ish as far as getting things done. I don't mean third world is a bad thing. I just mean this this part it's a negative thing because it's just hard to get things done here. Sometimes you know it's on a different time and people sort of rely on the same 
songbooks, you know, the same standard tunes, you know, the same meters, Neville Brothers stuff that everybody's been using. It's kind of derivative and and it's hard to get people to rehearse new material, <laughs> my experience. Whereas New York, it's all about that. I mean, I know like in New York, it was always I would go to, to 55 bar and, you know, Wayne Krantz would come up to me or somebody would talk about gigs. And in Nashville or L.A., it's, oh, you're playing with so-and-so. Oh, you're playing with. And in, in, in New York, it's like, oh, you're playing with so-and-so. Cool. What about your own thing? When are you out playing? When could I come hear you? When it, it's all about your own thing. Whereas Nashville and L.A. is more about how do you land a touring gig. And New <clears> Orleans <throat> is more about, oh, you're going to get a gig at Jazz Fest or you're playing Jazz Fest. It's a very insular bubble almost incestuous kind of music scene you know interesting yeah so when you that's joined the... my opinion anyway you know sure and so when you joined the neville brothers what did that do to you as a musician well it uh it, it did a lot of things it it allowed me to that was my first kind of real touring gig i had other touring gigs before and i toured and st but that was the first real deal things like really nice hotels and nice travel and but musically it really broadened me a lot and I, it introduced me to a lot of people i mean we had you know so many people would show up to those gigs it, it, because they were fans i mean mm -hmm. you know you had some of the grateful dead or billy gibbons or steve cropper or any of these people could show up at any gig and hang backstage. You, you, they had a lot of respect for the Nevels. The Nevels had a, they, they kind of swung a big stick, you know, with, with that whole, and they, and rightly so. I mean, it was like a school for me. So it was a great experience. I, I think I probably stayed a little too long, but uh, it was great. And um, mostly all great experiences with those guys. And you were there for like eight years. And, and how does one decide that you want to leave? Or did you have something else you wanted to work on? Yeah, I, I was always working on other things. What had happened, a combination of, of things. You know, I, I started having to turn down other things that I really wanted to do because I was committed to the Nevels. And and then um, I, the old record I did that I had to actually sub the Neville's gig and nobody had ever subbed the Neville's gig before. And I, at that point, I just, there were, there were things that I really wanted to do. Um, and then there was a record we did called Valent Street and it was a huge uh, budget for, uh, for the Neville's. It was on Sony and, you know, we had spent a lot of time when I say we, the band and the Neville's, I mean, I, I was a side man for sure, but we were all involved in writing and doing demos and, and then one day I get a call from um, uh, a person in Nashville who was putting together the session band. And she's like, are you available for a session for the Neville brothers next Monday and Tuesday for a two and a 6 PM session? And I'm going, wait, 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 where this is in Nashville. And then I come to find out the producer was just did this whole record in Nashville. I was the only one involved from new Orleans because i was kind of living in both places at the time but anyway it was basically amy grant's band on the neville brothers record because it's producer and it just turned out to be a disaster i mean it's a really disappointing record and that when it happened i was like you know what it's ruining my whole experience of this <laughs> and so about a year later I, you know it was a it was a disaster of a record so i i left and, um, but I still was friends with all those guys. I still talk to Aaron all the time. He texts me pretty much every two days, jokes and things. And, um, had a great relationship with them. It's a combination of things. And then was it easy to pick yourself up and go the direction you wanted to after leaving the Nevels? Yeah, I got busy. I was lucky. I pretty much stayed busy. I had a lot of great touring gigs. I, you know, I don't remember which order anymore, but. Sometime not long after that, um, I did a couple of years. I did about a year or two with Leanne Rhymes, but at that point, that was a really great gig, and it was like more of an LA rock gig. And I did, uh, I did, I was in a couple of her different projects, and and then she would call me to do like acoustic stuff with her because she liked the way I played rhythm. And then Boss Skaggs, and uh, did three years with him. All that stuff came after 
Neville. So it was all, it, it all worked out, you know. Um, so at this point, are you now thinking, I just want to be a touring musician supporting bigger names? Are you, or are you thinking that I want to go out on my own and do my own thing? Well, no, I ne actually, I never wanted to tour, believe it or not. I, I never wanted to be a touring musician. Um, and uh, I, I wanted to just do, I just wanted to be most, mostly doing studio work and session work. And I was getting into that and I had to make the choice to join the Nevilles or, or just stay in Nashville. That back then, you know, you're talking late nineties. That was, I think the line has been blurred, but there was a, there was a time where you were either a studio musician or you were a road guy. And, and that was it. There was no in between. And there were very, very few people in Nashville that ever did both successfully. And I had a lot of the, I, I was starting to do what they call master sessions, which are master recording sessions union, you know, means they're going to get released on a major label. I was starting to get those after years of doing really crappy demo sessions and, and I had a lot of the big time session players tell me, you know what, you're young and you're good and just don't leave town. Don't just turn down every gig you get offered, just stay in town. And I didn't do that. When the Neville's called, I took the gig, which I probably was the death of my uh, A-list a session player career in Nashville. But, you know, I, I was okay with that because I wanted to play. I still like playing live, you know. Can you talk about that a little bit? Or just, I mean, what does going out on the road with a high-level band like the Never Brothers or Boss Gags give you as a musician versus being in a studio playing at a high level? But it's a completely different discipline, is it not? I, yeah, it is a completely different discipline. And I've always subscribed to, you know, the guys that can do both. Um, because to me some of the players I was working with in the studio, they, they kind of got in their own box. And, and that's why a lot of things sounded the same after a while, because they were the same. They were playing eight bar solos all day long, right. coming up with the same hooks over the same three chords. And it just got, it just got so uninspiring. And I thought, you know, you go out and you play live with great bands. I'm not talking about just take any gig. I mean, really great high level players, and then you come back in the studio and you bring something that those other guys don't have. You have a fresh approach and there's a little bit of an energy and you take chances. And, and the studio playing that I was doing would keep my live playing focused and keep my concentration and my ability to learn parts and come up with parts quickly. I think those things went hand in hand and they still do. So my favorite players do both and they're, you know, they're, there are there are those kind of players and um but you know i'm picky about the things i do live you know but um so i think they i think one sharpens the other i think it's a double-edged sword and they both they both work together studio and live and the fact that you you're not crazy about being a touring musician is just is it the obvious of being away from your family yeah I, I i mean as you get older too it's like man i've been to so many of these places so many times and i just uh and it's just you know even a high level gig like like uh daryl hall and john oates or or some of the other ones i've done i mean besides you know mccartney or the stones i mean it's almost as good as it gets travel wise and it's still you're just physically away and i uh and even though we don't really do that much, this year's been really crazy. But I think I think Daryl and John are like when I got the call, the first question I asked was how how many gigs a year is it? You know, and it was like less than 30, which doesn't seem like much because your average country band is probably doing 150 dates a year. But with Daryl and John, they have the luxury of not doing one more than one show in a row. So that 30 becomes like more like 50 days a year right you know and then and i don't know i uh i just uh enjoy it less and less the travel music is always great that's always easy you know? i mean it's it's weird because and and especially in the last year or so i hear more and more of that musicians talking about questioning themselves and what they do partly because of the pandemic and, and spending more time at home or seeing the world in a different way. But does that have anything to do with it? Or was it just the way you felt long before and the pandemic maybe 
sealed the idea a little more? Well, I can tell you personally that um, the pandemic, I, it's probably the happiest personally I've been in years. Those, those say six months from March through whatever that was, I don't know, October or whatever. That was, I was, I felt like a different person. I didn't have to go anywhere. I could work on my own music every day, which I did. I wrote tons of songs. I was, you know, it was just fun. I just really enjoyed not having to play anybody else's music, not having to learn other things or write. It was just, I don't know. For me, it was great. Um, and I think a lot of my friends, some are, are very well-known guitar players. I think to answer your question, they were on the fence before. And I think the coronavirus just sort of sealed the deal. They were like, you know what? Uh, I think I could probably bump up my YouTube subscription, do my teaching, and I can make this work. I've, you see the writing on the wall. You go, well, if I can do this now, why can't I do it after coronavirus? I'm just not going to tour anymore. And you see that, you know, because especially doing something like Lake Combo or, or an original project, I, it's very hard to make it financially even break even, you know? So if you have a way to, to, um, to supplement your, not supplement, make an income without leaving your studio. I mean, why would you do it? You know, <laughs> I, unless you you have the luxury of working with a band who has so many hits that wherever you play, you know, there's a guaranteed audience. It's, it's just, there's a handful of those now left. Not many, you know. Well, well it must be something else to be going on tour with a band like Holland Oats and to have that repertoire behind you. Oh yeah, of course. That's what I mean. But there's only a there's only a handful of those kind of guys that left. You know, you Elton John, Billy Joel, McCartney. I mean, it, as far as hits that people still want to go hear those songs, the power of those songs. It it that's the longevity to those bands. You know, what is it about you that you have worked with so many great musicians? What what is it that you bring to the table, or what is it about your personality or your playing that attracts the Neville Brothers, Leon Rhymes, um, Boss Gags, Hollow Notes? Well, I don't know. I mean, I I'd like to think I'm a, a really good player, and and I I think my feel. I people always compliment me on my feel. Maybe it's I've been able to take the the feel of that whole New Orleans thing and kind of condense it and make it um, make it um, fit into more commercial music and 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 uh, work with different artists where it it's always sort of intact that sort of innate groove that's what people tell me um, and I think I'm pretty easy to get along with. I mean, you know, personality plays a big part when you're in the studio or touring. That that's a big thing. I mean, you have to be able to play, but um, and I, you know, I've worked really hard on learning styles and and um, about different kinds of music and things. So um, I guess that's what why the phone keeps ringing. You know, at what point did the phone start ring or keep ringing? Like, at what point did you know that you've reached the level that that you were quite comfortable with and that people knew who you are? I don't know. I mean, I don't even know if I'm, I, I mean, I've, I've stayed busy. I, I really haven't had a dry spell for a long time. And I, but I don't know if people know who I am. I mean, I'm sure guitar players, some guitar players, but I'm not, you know, super famous or anything, you know? Uh, so I don't know if you ever get to that point, really. But the fact that you're such a busy person and the fact that, you know, you've produced... You know, we're going to talk a little bit about the Dr. John album. You've had a Grammy Award before as a producer um, with Joel Sonnier, is that his name? Mm -hmm. Right. And and the fact that you've produced many other people. Um, what, what did the producing come come about? Uh, I think it was because I was watching other people call the shots that didn't really know what they were doing. And I had put, I had put the whole thing together. And I was like, well, why didn't I just do that? And um, that's what happened. I just, I said, well, if I'm going to spend that much time organizing it, well, I'll just produce it and it will come out better anyway. 
Did that come easy to you? Yeah, it's easy. I mean, I, and it's from doing four or five solo records. You know, you have to, it's a very, it's a very, you have to be very organized. You have to schedule things. You have to know how to deal with musicians, budgets, but the artistic part of it too. You know, that Joel Sonia record you're mentioning, Joel had been nominated three times. He's, he's an icon in Cajun music. And, and uh, my dad was a huge fan of his. And I played on some of Joel's records, but I never thought they captured what he was really about. And Joel had been working on um, these songs. Joel basically only spoke Cajun French until he was 15 years old. He's a he's one of the last people alive that comes from that world that sings Cajun French music in his native tongue of Cajun French. And there's nobody left. And um, I mean, he was he was friends with all the guys in Little Feet. He was in that movie, The Mask, and he had a little, you know, he had some fame for. A this record was very special to him, and it was called The Legacy. So I I just knew if I produced it, I could capture it, and I did. And it, yeah, it won a Grammy, and uh, and it's uh, it's a really special record. And it, it was the same thing with Dr. John. I, I you know I call him Mac, and I've I've known Mac a while, and. I just, it was the same thing. I've watched him on stage and I thought, you know, I know what he likes. I know the musicians, the type, the feel, I know how to deal with him. He respects me musically because of my pedigree and all the New Orleans people I played with. And um, he liked a couple of my solo records. And I just know if he gives me the reins, I can make it happen, you know? And actually, we just found out yesterday that re the record is nominated for a Grammy. Yeah, congratulations on that. Well, Americano, right? Yeah, Americano. It's got some some heavy competition in there, but uh, with Robert Plant, Allison Krauss, and Keb Moe, and uh, uh, Bonnie Raitt. But, you know, I'm thrilled it's nominated because there was a lot of bullshit with that record that you might have read about. But uh, Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that, that... I mean, I don't know if it surprises me, but I'm sorry to hear that you'd worked hand in hand with him for a long time and he was very happy with it, but things got ugly once he passed away. Yeah. Um, and can you still enjoy that experience? I can't, I can't imagine how you wouldn't have looked back on your time with Dr. John and hanging out at your place for months creating this thing. Um, but I presume that when other people get involved and things are different, it puts a bad taste in your mouth. It taints it. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's just amazing what happens when somebody else does work and then, you know, people swoop in to take credit or change things after it's done after all the heavy lifting's done, you know? So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it taints it for sure. But I'm proud of most of that record, the parts that weren't changed and run into the ground. Um, tell me about working with Mac well I mean he was a one of a kind you know he was he was uh, always had a colorful vocabulary for everything and um, you know it, it, this word's sort of overused now but I, I think there was a spiritual side to him that I, I would feel and when we would go on stage you know we'd we would all hold hands in a circle and he would say a prayer to what, to what gods I have no idea, but <laughs> it was a, it was a well-meaning prayer and it was, and it, and I always felt good after these prayers, you know, and he, when he would come over, he would say things that made me feel it. The air would feel, feel different when he was there. It, it, he just had a, a way of, um, he had that thing, man. I don't know what, what you call it. Um, and then musically, of course, he was great. He was just, he was one of the legends, so I'm. I was honored to be working with him, and um, it was fun. We had a, we had a lot of laughs. I, I told this story before, but when I got a chance to interview Dr. John after the interview, while I was packing up my gear, he kind of insisted on asking me questions about my family, and and about my background, and mainly about my family. And it was, and it seems like a minor thing. But at that point, it, he might have been the first musician to really take interest in who I was outside of what I was doing. 
and it really made an impression on me that you know he it, he didn't want to know about what what this thing was but you know how's your mom doing and it was like it just stunned me but i was so moved by that and um and i got to know him a little bit after that and i i just thought he was such a special person so we were in japan once i was in japan once with him and it was my father and i, I you know we told you before my my uh my wife's Japanese and uh, my father-in-law who passed away in March. He was such a great guy. Anyway, it was birthday and we were at the billboard live in Tokyo and Mac actually sang happy birthday to him, played piano and sang happy birthday and got his name right and everything in the mic. You know, it was unbelievable. And I still have that recorded. Uh, I mean, for him to do that was just, it was just great. I want to talk about your podcast because it's a great podcast called The Riff Raff. And you started in 2015 or 2016? Yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, it's been a little dormant as of late because uh, I just haven't had time to do it. But um, yeah, back when I started it, you know, now everybody's got a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely wasn't the first, but uh, there wasn't, there weren't a lot of guitar kind of podcasts around, but now it's there. Everybody's got a podcast. And, um, so I, what, it just started as a way to tell stories. Which I'd hear the I was privy to great stories, and and I thought, man, I, people should hear this. You know, <laughs> uh, that's how it, it started. Yeah, I think I told you already, but there's an episode with Greg Fillingaines. Yeah, that podcast was amazing. Not only because he's an amazing musician who's done a lot, but it was almost like you, you got the sense that he was taking you on this little journey. And I think physically it was a journey because I think he went to three oh, different yeah. places. Oh yeah, we were just driving around. I went with him to his chiropractor, <laughs> and uh, we—that's yeah. Everybody that's been on the podcast, most of the people up to a certain point, at least the first thirty, or like close friends or people I worked with. So it's yeah, it's just two buddies shooting the shit. That's what yeah. I wanted it to be. Yeah, which is great because there's that intimacy. But he—he he was just so amazing, so amusing. And the stories he told were like crazy. Oh, I know, man. He's got the best stories. Greg, yeah. what, what, what did you play on Beat It? You know, what was your audition for Stevie Wonder like? How was it making um, that record with Donald Fagan, and the Nightfly? You know, I mean, and he he'll he'll one up you with. It's just unbelievable the stories. Oh well, let me tell you about the time I was with David Gilmore and Pompeii. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was. Um, I mean, if people haven't heard it, they should definitely check it out. I mean, all the other ones are great too because of that intimacy that you have and and, yeah. and the connection that you have with those musicians. But that one just blew me away. The other thing I want to ask you about was the band that you played with with Chris Squire and Alan White. Sin. Oh yeah, the Sin. Yeah. Tell me how that happened. Uh, that happened because they needed a guitar player. Well, they did a they meaning Chris and. Steve Nardelli, who was the original singer in a band called The Sin, S-Y-N. They were in the late 60s. It was pre-Yes. I believe it was Bill Bruford, Peter Banks, I believe. I'm sorry if I'm messing up these names. Um, and Chris and, and Steve Nardelli, um, they they played at like the Marquee Club in London. They, they had quite the following. And then it sort of morphed into Yes. It was, it was pre-Prague. They didn't right. even call it then that back then. Anyway, they were doing a reunion. So they did a record and it was called Sin Destructible. And my friend Jeremy Stacy, who was playing with King Crimson, he's played with a lot of big English acts. He's a London based drummer. He and his brother Paul did the record with Chris and Steve Nardelli. And then something happened. Some argument broke out over money or the record or whatever. So both the Stacy brothers quit, but they were doing this US tour. So Chris got Alan White to play drums from Yes. So you had the Yes rhythm section. And I think they asked Steve Lukather, Lukather to do it, but he couldn't do it. And I got asked to do it. Um, maybe they ran out of other calls. I don't know. But I spent a week learning that record. And, and it was layered with guitar parts. And <laughs> it took me forever to try to condense that into something I could do live. And, and we did um, three shows in New York City. We did couple shows in LA we did a you know tour we did a DVD and we did another 
record that was sort of cobbled together from live things. But it was a great experience. And I loved Chris and Alan and the stories again, man, if I had that podcast back then, you know, Chris was, it was real life spinal tap. It was, it was Nigel Tufnell for real. You know? So how much does your playing change? Because all of a sudden you were playing with members of Yes. Yeah, it was weird. Cause when I was doing that, I was actually, I was working with Leanne Rhymes and I would come off of a run with her and I was working with Chris and Allie. It was really weird. Um, it changed a lot, you know, it, it changed a lot. They were completely different. Chris, it was it, Chris and Alan playing with them. It was way more loose and it was more rock and roll, you know? And I remember we were at the knitting factory in Hollywood and, and Trevor, Trevor uh, Rabin came backstage, you know, and that was the period of yes, that I was familiar with, you know, growing up in the eighties and stuff, you know, and Trevor was really cool to me. He was a nice guy. And I always loved those, those songs. Uh, what a player. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't do any of that stuff, but it was great to meet him. And I mean, the fact that they would pick you out, like, I don't, I don't know how that happens. Well, it, it happens like in any business, it's who, you know, and I knew a guy who was either the manager or working with a manager. And they, he's like, I know this guy that could come in and, on on no notice and and learn all these parts and I've done that a lot. I got hired for Leanne like that. I got hired, um, basically you know you're 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 parachuted in <laughs> to learn all this stuff last minute and come in and and do things because other people have bailed out and I've gotten quite a few gigs like that. Is that based on the training that you had at GIT? Is that or is that something completely different? It's probably all all kinds of things just doing just years of experience playing different music and having to learn a lot of material and you know in in the last week in the last two weeks i've done three live from daryl's house tv shows with three different artists and done the like combo stuff and then a couple other things in between and i just i i learned how to juggle things early on i think it's from doing more a lot of recording sessions and things you just you know, you just, I, I'm not good at much else as far as organization, but I i have the ability, it seems to file away, like I can hear things once or twice and I just know how to make little mental notes that come back. And um, I don't know why that is. I guess it's just years of doing it, but it, it I won't say it's easy, but I, I have a process and it always kind of works for me, learning a lot of different material and you know, not just learning it, but really owning it, trying to anyway, you know. I, I wonder, I mean, I get the impression from listening to your podcast, even though when I hear your albums, I hear very funky, technically superior guitar playing, that inside, deep inside, there is like a heavy metal guitar player. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, that's that's what I grew up on. I, I still sit around and and play, you know, Bark at the Moon, Jakey e. Lee, or something <laughs> by myself. I still love all that stuff. Was there ever any desire to record something like that? To record? No, the closest I've come to something like that is uh, probably that tune Zodiac on uh, my record, the, the Grease Factor. Right. Uh, but even that has got more fusion in it than those guys would allow, I'm sure. But um, I, I still love, you know, van halen riffs and and that stuff just still brings a smile on my face that's kind of my baby food you know that stuff and i got into jazz when i was 15 so i can play all that stuff still and i think i think the i think maybe what you hear is when you learn those riffs and and you know you learn that kind of i won't say shred although i can i i could I used to be able to do some of that stuff. It's it's more the attitude that you have with your left and right hand. You know, it's just an attack. I still have that attack, although I've learned to kind of hone it for different styles of music. It's the way you dig in, and it's a little bit of a vibe that a, a strictly jazz player will never be able to do that, you know? I mean, I can't play. I, I won't sound like a real bebop player, but I can play over changes, and I know how to kind of make that work. But I think it's harder to come from a jazz place to try to play rock and make it work. Same thing with drumming too, you know. 
jazz so, drummer. It's just so when you get caught up on stage with somebody like Sammy Hagar, like is that like a dream come true for you? Oh yeah, it was great. Yeah, that that uh, that only happened I think twice, two or three times. But th- Sammy asked me to sit in with him, and he was in Biloxi, which is like ninety minutes from New Orleans, and I just happened to be in New Orleans. And he said, "Come down and sit in." So I sat in with everybody. He introduced me to Jason Bonham, and uh, and uh, I walked up to Jason and I said, "Hey man, I'm, you know I'm Shane," and he goes, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Listen." Dr. John, you got to tell me about Dr. John. That's all he wanted to talk about was Dr. John. And he said, he said, have you seen the song remains the same? And I said, of course I've seen it. And he goes, you know, there's a, a scene where I'm with my dad and I'm a, I'm a little baby and we're in front of the jukebox. And I said, Oh yeah, I kind of remember that. And he goes, and you know, what we're listening to Dr. John. Wow. Wow. So, uh, so it was cool to meet those guys. And then, yeah, I sat in, we, we played some, uh, I think we d- actually did a Led Zeppelin. So I think we did rock and roll. Um, but I flew back with with Sammy and his jet. It was just me and Sammy and his two pilots, and it was on a private jet, Sammy's personal jet. And we just talked about guitar. You know, he told talked about Eddie, talked about Joe Satriani, and I'm, and it's like you can't really tell people about this because it sounds like you're bragging. <laughs> I guess you are, but I mean, people don't really that those kind of moments are very very rare and. uh but as a kid listening to Van Halen, you, I never thought that would happen. Just stand on stage with Michael Anthony and Van Halen. And yeah, like yeah. Sammy, I mean, you know, it's um, so yeah, that that's the those those are the high points of what we do. You know, they're they're few and far between. And then for every one of those, there's you know, a hundred that shitty experiences, you know. It's like Greg actually Fillingate said that on the podcast. I remember him telling me that. You know, for every, I mean, I'm telling you the best stories, but for every one of these, there's still, there's, and I said, well, Greg, your stories are still, <laughs> even the bad ones are above average, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, couple couple more questions. One mm-hmm. is Le Combo. Mm-hmm. You, you're singing in it. You don't sing that much before. Uh, you kind of alluded to when we exchanged emails, but but why why at this point did you become a lead singer? That's not true. I I have sang, I've sang back background vocals, pretty much. I don't know for a, a lot of bands. I mean, I, I sang in the Neville Brothers. I sang background, but not that I was needed at all. <laughs> um, and I sing with Hall and Oates background again. Not that I'm needed. I mean, I've always worked with amazing singers. Mm-hmm. And um, but but lead vocals is something that I haven't done. And why now? Well. It, we just got together during coronavirus. I, I I had moved to LA and I uh, got a place out there, started spending more time. And this drummer named Toss Panos, who great drummer, he played, still plays with Larry Carlton and Robin Ford and Lukather and Steve Vai. He was in to- Toy Matinee, Mike Landau, great drummer, one of my favorite drummers. We got together, started playing, and he goes, Man, I'm going to call my friend Jurgen Carlson, who works for Government Mule bass player come over and jam so we just started coming up with things i had some ideas and and um i just thought you know i don't want to do another instrumental thing we can do some of the instrumental stuff but i started just riffing on it singing and they just dug the shit out of it and and turned into it turned into lake combo and uh, i had a lot of other people tell me that you know you should sing it sounds great you know yeah and so it's just uh it's a new thing. I and also I get sick of just playing guitar solos all the time. And for a trio, it's hard to carry that, you know, unless you have another instrument or you you have a lot of pedals or effects or something. Jurgen's not really a soloist, like he's more meat and potatoes bass. So it's we we decided to kind of go that route. We didn't really decide, it just kind of came out that way. And um and I'd worked with a lot of singers too. Sometimes that I'd look at and go, "Wow, I could actually sing almost as good as that." <laughs> and you're, <laughs> but you're comfortable with it. Yeah, it's. I'm starting to get more comfortable with it. it it's just uh, now playing and singing live vocals and playing the riffs that I play that tend to be more syncopated is more challenging. That's harder. Right. Yeah. My final question. Mm-hmm. Um, and thank you again for doing this. We've been trying sure. to get together for a while. Do you have philosophy in in your playing, and or in your music? 
I don't know if I if I'm not. <laughs> I don't know if I'm that sophisticated to have a philosophy. I I guess I I. I try to make things feel good. And the older I get, I look at things differently, and I look at players that how to reach a person that's not addition. I'm not phrasing that clearly, but you look at the way somebody can connect, connect with someone um, just by what they play. And it's, that is, is hard for me to, to figure out, you know, like Miles Davis could do it with a few notes. It's not always about a few notes though, but it's about connecting with people. Some people connect with more notes and, um, and phrasing so philosophy i don't know i try to tap into that try to tap into making people feel something and because uh, that's what it's all about is to stir emotion in people mm -hmm. and if you're not doing that then what good is it you know i it's not really a philosophy maybe i need to maybe i need to find one um <laughs> but i i'm lucky to be doing what i'm doing and music is a special thing and um I just feel like people are getting more lost on their, their, you know, music, music has always had the visual aspect and, you know, it's nothing new. I mean, the Beatles on Ed Sullivan and all that it was a visual thing is just as strong, but I think now, especially guitar players with YouTube and things, I, I think like people are moving away from the music part and they're more into the, the gear and the equipment. And I mean, you can, I, I know if I post a, a photo of a, uh, a gig I'm doing or a song, it'll get X amount of likes. If I post something of a pedal, it'll probably get twice as many, you know? And that's just the way it is. It's like, I think we're like people are, it's almost more important than the, the craft, you know? The, the, the gear is more important than the actual big picture. Right. So and I kind of don't know what a philosophy is anymore. I don't know. But it's like all the bands that you've played with have are great because they have songs. It's about the mu it's about the songs as opposed to anything else. Right? So. That's true. Yeah, that is true. I, I don't know how you could do that in this day and age and have like John and Daryl and have, you know, I don't know how many top ten hits they had. A lot. I don't yeah, know yeah. anybody could do that now. You know, especially playing a guitar or like real like a band you know i mean maybe hip-hop things might you might have some but i don't know what kind of longevity that is so no that's true yeah shane thank you so much for doing this i am so thrilled that we finally got to connect with one another and i really appreciate it yeah thank you for asking and your patience and thank you